Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A Canadian woman missing in Costa Rica. My initial reaction really was that she had just been mad and left. Her worried family and what her husband says about the last time he saw her. Growing demand for rapid testing. It certainly helps you figure out who is infectious at the time. With thousands of kits sitting in a warehouse, some wonder why BC still won't put them into use for students. And who's got the winning ticket? Oh, she was me. It's not you? <laughs> no. Someone in Burnaby is getting a big payout after a record jackpot. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin tonight with breaking news. The Surrey School District has become the latest to expand its mask requirement. Surrey School Superintendent Jordan Tinney announcing late this afternoon that effective Monday, October 4th, Surrey's mask mandate will include all students from kindergarten through grade 12. Tinney also says the district will partner with Fraser Health to explore hosting vaccine clinics in schools, hoping to increase vaccination rates. It's also going to promote the use of take-home mouth rinse COVID-19 tests. The Vancouver School Board decided on Monday to extend its mask mandate as well to include all students K-12. And there is growing pressure tonight on Dr. Bonnie Henry and the B.C. government to make more use of rapid testing for COVID-19. B.C. is dead last among provinces when it comes to rapid testing. And critics say with cases soaring, it's time to change that. Richard Zussman reports. It's a traffic jam to get a COVID test. A long stream of cars in North Vancouver at a testing site, growing as virus cases climb in children and leading to more calls to make rapid tests more available. Because we do not yet vaccinate kids, um, we need to have layers of protection in place and we need things that are going to help parents uh, and, and people at school feel confident. The BC Teachers Union here has been calling specifically to have rapid tests used in schools, especially now that children make up more than 30% of new cases per day. There would have to be access, free access to rapid testing in our view, um, because if, if, it's not, if it's not freely accessible, then you're going to have families that you know, just won't be able to have access to testing. Right now in BC, there's nowhere where you can buy a rapid test and parents can't bring them home. In Nova Scotia, the government has provided more than 300,000 tests for families. It's something BC may slowly be coming around to, although it would be hyper-focused in areas of higher COVID transmission. Can I get a couple at the home so if my child wakes up and has a little bit of a runny nose, I, I can make that decision today whether to send them to school or not. Those types of tests are not available yet, um, but there's potential for them, and I would like to see them available to everybody. 
Rapid tests are not definitive, and a positive should lead to someone getting the more comprehensive PCR test. The federal government has provided tests to provinces. Nova Scotia has used 460 federal tests per 1,000 people in the province. Ontario at 430, Alberta at 230 per 1,000, at the bottom, BC, which is 20 tests used per 1,000 people. I think it would be a huge missed opportunity if uh, there is no uh, change in course. I think we need to uh, pivot to uh, where the problems are and use the tools that we have. The tests have produced false positives, but not often in cases where people are infectious. There is some testing now taking place in long-term care, but unlike schools, it's among a nearly fully vaccinated population. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Hasn't been a great day when it comes to the COVID-19 numbers in our province. We have 813 new cases, bumping active cases up to 6,185. 340 people are in hospital. That's a jump of 24, and 146 of those patients are in the ICU. 11 more people have died due to complications of the virus, including two people in their 30s, and one person in their 40s. Keith Ball rejoins us now with a fresh look at the hot spots around the province. Mm -hmm. And Keith, this data just came out this afternoon. Yes, it's an update from the Center for Disease Control. So look, our hospitalizations are up on a weekly basis. The number of people dying is on the increase. The number of people going into ICU is on the increase. And our, our hotspots are increasing in number as well. And the numbers within the hotspots are big as well. So here's uh, six communities with more than 200 cases last week. Surrey leads the list with 344 cases, an increase of 53 in just one week. Prince George, also very high numbers. Central Okanagan continues to be a problem. Chilliwack, again, a hot spot in Metro Vancouver on the, in the eastern uh, Fraser Valley. Kamloops continues to struggle with COVID-19. And suddenly, the biggest increase of all, Maple Ridge Pit Meadows with more than 200 cases, an increase of 133. That, of course, is where that school uh, closed, uh, uh, Maple Ridge Christian School, for those under the age of uh, grade 6. Chilliwack's also had a school closed there. As you heard in Richard's story, school kids are really 30, more than 30% of the daily cases. You may be asking, how can Surrey, which has a high vaccination rate in some cases, well more than 90% in some neighborhoods still have so many cases. The reason is there's still a heck of a lot of unvaccinated people in that community, as there are in many other communities. 44,000 people in Surrey have yet to get one dose. They are very vulnerable to getting the Delta variant, and that's why the numbers keep piling up in places like Surrey and Chilliwack. Hopefully this helps them get the message to get it done. Thanks, Keith. Abbotsford police are assisting the family of a 40-year-old woman who was reported missing in Costa Rica more than a month ago. Jacqueline Furland-Smith had been living with her husband in an area about 30 kilometers from the Liberia airport near Playa de la Rosa. Romina Dea has more on the extensive search efforts to locate the Fraser Valley woman as her family pleads for information. Colleen and Gordon Smith thousands of kilometers away from Abbotsford in a foreign land on a desperate search for their missing daughter. Now we've had nothing, no news, nothing except one woman that said she saw her. And we don't know if that's for real or not. 40-year-old Jacqueline Furland-Smith, who has a kinesiology degree and has worked as a Canadian military training officer, vanished August 17th from her home 
in the beach resort area of Playa Hermosa, Costa Rica, where she had been living with her Canadian husband for just over two years. Then she started slowly to uh, basically like lose it, literally, like, and uh, I want to die. Sebastian Furland, the Abbotsford woman's husband, said his wife was upset because her residency application had been rejected. Later that evening, there was a fight. She just lost it on me while I was in shower and came and punched me in the mouth uh, hard enough to uh, get my four lower teeth through my, uh, my lip. Stunned by what had just happened, Sebastian said he got himself together and out of the shower, but Jacqueline was gone. Sebastian reported her missing the following day. To those people who may say or think that you have something to do with her disappearance, what do you respond? Uh, I would just have to say to those people, uh, obviously they don't know me, okay, but I have nothing to prove to them. They can just come here instead of complaining and like see the efforts we're doing. Jacqueline's father says Sebastian called him on August 18th, the day after his daughter disappeared. Well, you explained that they had a fight, um, her and um, Sebastian there or something, and I think she hit, hit him or something, and she supposedly left the house and didn't take her phone and... He said he, she took her purse but uh, and left behind her wedding ring or something, so it just seemed odd to us. Abbotsford police were contacted by Jacqueline's parents on August 20th. They are now assisting. The APD has notified the BC Missing Person Centre and the RCMP liaison officer for Costa Rica. So we're asking that if anybody has any information that could assist us, or maybe they have heard from her, or if they have anything at all that they think that could assist our investigation, it's really important that they contact us. Costa Rican police continue to search for Jacqueline, along with an army of volunteers. Jacqueline's husband says his wife has been extremely depressed for a long time, and it's not the first time she has left home. Her parents are offering a reward, roughly $10,000 Canadian, for any information leading to Jacqueline's whereabouts. You feel like maybe there's somebody who... Um knows something that but has been afraid to say something. Um, we thought that this might help uh, bring forward anybody. It's been a month. She's been missing. Romina Dea, Global News. BC's deadly toxic drug crisis is showing no signs of slowing down. The latest monthly numbers show July was the second deadliest month on record. As Amata Gahi reports, that means on average six people are dying every day. It is a report that once each month shows British Columbians the bleak and heartbreaking reality of our other public health emergency. Today we have to stop the deaths. It's just as simple as that. And we're not seeing fast enough movement on this. This province lost another 184 people to toxic drug overdose in July. And the 1,204 deaths reported in just the first half of 2021 puts the year on pace for another grim record. What does it really take? Does it take 200, 300? Like at, at what point do we respond with a direct targeted response to this crisis? We did it with COVID. Illicit drug overdose is now far and above the leading cause of unnatural death in BC. And if not already clear, statistics showing the vast majority of these deaths happening in people's homes should separate what's been long linked to homelessness and the downtown east side. If we don't implement in some way a safe supply of drugs that people who are addicted need, 
the numbers will not change. By drug testing, this private clinic in Vancouver is trying to make a difference. I am very confident we have saved thousands of people from having overdoses or bad drug experiences. But the work here, as good as it may be, cannot replace what advocates have been calling for, which is a safe and regulated supply from the top. The province and the federal government really should be creating a safe drug supply and we shouldn't be needed because drugs should be getting tested before they're sold. And if it truly is government inaction tied to the rate of overdose in BC, former drug user Guy Felicella won't mince words. I think some lives matter more than others and drug users' lives don't matter much. And if they did, then prove me wrong. Emadagahi, Global News. A ruling in favor of Ferry Creek logging protesters and the ripple effect across this province. How the logging industry and the affected First Nation are responding and what it means for other contentious resource projects. Next on the News Hour. Mercedes collide. Save the season for Get ready for the return of auto racing to the streets of Vancouver. Only this time, no gasoline required. That's coming up on the News Hour. Also, the long climb is over for the last of the Canadian miners trapped underground in Sudbury. How they got out later. Right now, though, a judge has quashed an extension to the injunction keeping protesters away from Ferry Creek on Vancouver Island. But it is not likely to end the violent confrontations that have come to define it. Protesters have squared off with police and forest workers about the logging of the old growth forest by Teal Jones Group. And as Kylie Stanton shows us, it appears this war in the woods is far from over. Guess what, friends? The injunction is over. After 133 days, these protesters have a reason to celebrate. I was really, really surprised. And I'm very grateful and thankful. RCMP have moved out of the Ferry Creek watershed after a B.C. Supreme Court judge denied an application to extend the injunction. The decision is uh, validating and confirms what we've been saying all summer, which is that the police have failed to uphold their duty to keep the public safe and to enforce that injunction. In the 32-page decision, Justice Douglas Thompson writes, methods of enforcement of the court's order have led to serious and substantial infringement of civil liberties. And enforcement has been carried out by police officers rendered anonymous to the protesters, many of those police officers wearing thin blue line badges. Thompson goes on to say the factors in favor of extending the injunction are outweighed by the public interest in protecting the court from the risk of further depreciation of its reputation. But the National Police Federation has a different take, saying it's proud of its members' conduct in the face of exceptional challenges. Now, with only hired security left to handle the situation, the forest company is left with little choice but to appeal the decision. It will have to be timely. Any long-term interruption uh, is not favorable, obviously. At the same time, while the Pachitat First Nation is working to determine how to best manage the resources in its territory, it's once again calling on protesters to move on. Chief Counselor Jeff Jones's statement reads, We respectfully reiterate our request that all protesters vacate PFN territory to allow us to conduct this work in peace. So the quote-unquote land defenders uh, are, are not only offside of the law, offside of society, but they're also offside of the First Nations. But the protesters say they're not going anywhere. We are making headway with this 
um, struggle. And we are here. Instead, the decision has only strengthened their spirits. Knowing what's happened is a first, but may not be the last. It could be, you know, any other project in the province that when people come together, um, policy can change and the courts will follow that. Kylie Stanton, Global News. A major legal blow to Stanley Park business owners who've been fighting the city over a bike lane through Stanley Park. A B.C. Supreme Court justice has dismissed an attempt by a group of restaurants to overturn the city's decision to dedicate one lane of traffic to bikes. Restaurants argue the decision was unreasonable, saying the park board's reasons for establishing the bike lane were flawed. But Justice Sheila Tucker ruled the park board's decision doesn't have to be flawless in order to be reasonable and turned down their request. Up next, another way Vancouver is cracking down on cars. This similarly just becomes another, another, another method, another angle of taxation. How all of that free parking won't be free for long. And later, the story behind thousands of orange ribbons on the grounds of the Vancouver Art Gallery. Big delays both east and westbound on Highway 1 through Vancouver and Burnaby due to a crash just before Boundary. Crews are on scene in the right lane. Planning a trip with BCAA Travel Insurance, you get free COVID-19 medical coverage and worldwide virtual care from BC's top choice. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Centre. Richmond RCMP are looking for witnesses to a hit and run that sent a cyclist to hospital. The cyclist says he was riding in the bike lane in the 8200 block of Granville Avenue on Friday when he was clipped by a silver Honda SUV. He was taken to hospital, treated and released. Witnesses say the driver of the SUV, described as an Asian man in his mid-40s, got out of the vehicle and looked at the cyclist, but then still drove away. A witness was able to get a partial license plate of 73B, and police are asking anyone with information or dash cam or surveillance video to get in touch with them. Well, it looks like beginning next year, every car owner in the city of Vancouver will need an overnight permit if they want to park on their street. And owners of new gas-powered vehicles will pay a pollution tax. Ted Chernecki has the latest on the city's controversial climate emergency parking program. Turns out all that free parking on side streets throughout Vancouver isn't free at all. And starting early in the new year, it'll be like having a parking meter in front of every home. Our parking meters are now on our phones. It, this is, this is, it's 2021, Ted, and our parking meters are now on our phones. City bylaw enforcers could drive up and down these streets scanning license plates looking for freeloaders. Vancouver's climate emergency parking program, if approved next week by council, will impose a roughly $45 annual fee for all property owners. $5 for low-income households. Even overnight visitors will have to use their phones to pay $3. Currently, only about 10% of Vancouver's streets are regulated by pay or permit parking. The rest, 90% of all available spaces, will become paid parking. It's to level the playing field. For example, some new condo buyers are tired of having to pay a premium for a parking stall they'll never use. So this is a more equitable approach to what actually parking free parking does actually cost us and the, the idea to reinvest that into greener solutions so that maybe we can have more availability of electric chargers that kind of thing the other part of the plan is an annual pollution charge of 500 to a thousand dollars for all vehicles newer than 2023 that are deemed environmentally unfriendly 
regardless of why homeowners might need them. It, in one way, doesn't actually deal with the fact that in certain professions, uh, folks can't necessarily take transit to work and that they very much need their private vehicles. But then even within those private vehicles, they need specific types of private vehicles. So I think that that is, I think, still one of the outstanding issues. Small economy cars, plug-in hybrids and electrical vehicles would be exempt. The two programs are expected to raise about $68 million over four years. I think most British Columbians realize that the climate is changing and we do have to do more to address it. So I think that, that there, there is some, some really good stuff in here. There are a couple of challenging pieces that we're going to have to look a little harder on. Council votes on the final draft on Tuesday. Ted Chernaki, Global News. A rescue operation to free 39 workers stranded underground at a mine near Sudbury is over. Global's Mike Drolet has more as the last of the miners safely emerged. For the past 72 hours, employees here at the Totten Mine just west of Sudbury have been focused on one thing and one thing alone, getting the 39 miners stuck underground to safety. The miners weren't technically trapped because there was always an emergency egress system, but the route to the surface is not one anyone would care to use. Long metal ladders going straight up through a long narrow shaft. So you can imagine the elation when the final workers emerged at 4.45 this morning. To a very large degree, um, the, the spirits of our employees were quite high, considering the circumstances. Um, but, but yeah, overall, just uh, an overall feeling of, uh, of uh, relief and, uh, you know, I guess I'd say happiness and just happy to get back to surface and uh, get back to a, a normal uh, state with uh, their families. We also now have more information on the mechanical failure that shut the mine down. The cables lowering a giant scoop bucket capable of holding seven yards of dirt broke 650 feet down the 4,000 foot main shaft. It then became lodged into the walls of the shaft at the 750 foot mark. They know there's a significant amount of damage around that spot, but that's all they've been able to assess so far, meaning they have no idea when this facility is going to reopen. Everything below the surface right now is shut down until further notice. But the most important thing, they say, to come out of mines is miners. Mike Trillet, Global News, in near Sudbury, Ontario. Still ahead, an urgent plea from exhausted Okanagan doctors. Their message to those who still aren't vaccinated. And not all orange shirts are created equal. A warning about those trying to capitalize on truth and reconciliation. Good evening. Checking on the downtown bridges, and it looks like Burrard and Granville Street Bridge are pretty good in and out of the downtown core. The Canby Street Bridge is super busy, southbound from the north end right to the lights at Broadway. Through Carmack Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Carmack, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Carmack Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. A powerful and poignant installation has appeared at the Vancouver Art Gallery on the eve of National Truth and Reconciliation Day. Thousands of orange ribbons. Each of the ribbons on display represents a child who died. In total, 6,128 ribbons were placed in the soil to pay tribute to residential school children believed buried in unmarked graves. Haida artist Tamara Bell says this is a way of creating a visual of the enormity of the loss. 
The first Truth and Reconciliation Day is an enormous event because it's the first time as Indigenous people we're being seen for the genocide that's been perpetrated against us. And this is a time for Canadians to reflect on really what has happened. And that's why the truth part of it is super important. Reconciliation is what's happening here today. Well, a lot of people will be wearing orange tomorrow, but many Indigenous artists are asking that you do some research before buying a shirt online. Some designs appear to be purely for profit. John Waugh has more on how you can ensure your purchase is helping to support residential school survivors and their families. These cuts are meant to heal. Every intricate detail designed by Tina Taphouse, a tribute to her mother, and other residential school survivors. My mom gave me up for adoption so that I wouldn't have to go to the Kamloops residential school. Taphouse said after she later reunited with her birth family, she learned many of her relatives had lived through the horrors they so desperately tried to protect her from. My mom made that heart-wrenching decision. So this is my small way to honor my mom and dad and family. The Langley artists peeling back the generations of pain and placing their truth onto an orange t-shirt sold locally in support of the Indian Residential School Survivor Society. And a lot of times people will apologize to me. They have tears and, you know, we share, we share some time together. But there are some who are stealing the powerful symbolism of these shirts and trying to sell them for pure profit. We have no idea who's selling them or you know, what, what the funding is being used for. Making matters even worse, some of the designs stolen directly from Indigenous artists. When people are just taking people's art and slapping it on a t-shirt and selling it, then it, no one can answer that question about what, what does the design actually mean. The Orange Shirt Society has provided a list of partner retailers including major names like London Drugs and Hudson's Bay. So there you go. For smaller campaigns like that of Tina Taphouse, legitimacy can be confirmed through conversation. That's what I find amazing about this is to be able to have conversations with people. Hard to imagine some would see these prints symbolic of truth and reconciliation and use them to repeat a pattern of harm. John Hua, Global News. And we understand these stories may be triggering for our viewers. So if you or someone you know needs support, you can call that number on your screen, 1-866-925-4419. The crisis line operates 24 hours a day. And as Canadians observe the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation tomorrow, one Vancouver man is taking it a step further and plans to pay it forward quite literally. City of Vancouver employee Josh Hensman recently launched One Day's Pay, a campaign encouraging people to give up their day's pay tomorrow and donate it to Indigenous-led organizations. In a week's time, he's already raised more than $55,000. And in addition to the money, he hopes meaningful action will come from reflection and deeper engagement. When I first heard about the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, I felt really conflicted. I was a relatively privileged white guy and I was going to be getting a paid day off on a day that was supposed to be recognizing and honoring Indigenous peoples. And that just didn't seem right to me. I knew that there were a lot of other Canadians that were feeling the same way that I was, that they'd been reflecting and, and hearing about Indigenous issues for a long time. And 
probably felt some some frustration or inability to act and just didn't know what to do. Hensman says the organization is working with indigenous groups and so far he's received great feedback from the community. Well, there have been many lessons learned from homegrown hero Terry Fox and his legacy. And today, a more physical lesson is being shared. The Terry Fox Inspiration in Action lesson plan is a new resource for educators as part of a planned series celebrating the outstanding contributions of Indigenous athletes. Through the lesson plans, students from grades 4 to 7 will examine Terry and his family's discovery of their Métis background while examining what it means to be Métis. Through these vitally important lesson plans, Terry's place in Canadian history and as a Métis will forever be with us. And mark my words, kids, today you're part of a reminder, and to some people they'll be hearing it for the first time, that Terry Fox was what he was because of his Métis roots. The program will be incorporated into Port Coquitlam schools. Port Coquitlam, of course, Terry Fox's hometown. In Health Matters tonight, as cases of COVID-19 trend upward in this province, doctors at Kelowna General Hospital are pleading with residents there to get vaccinated. Global's Claudia Van Emmerich has more on their message to the community. According to BC Public Health officials, there are currently 146 COVID patients in intensive care at hospitals across the province, 45 of them here in Interior Health, as the fourth wave of the pandemic keeps healthcare workers, including doctors, busy. We've all been through this. We've all been getting a little bit sick and tired of, uh, of having to change our lives, but at the same time, um, there's still cases. People are still requiring care. The vast majority of patients in ICU, according to public health officials, are unvaccinated or partially vaccinated people, something the Kelowna General Hospital Physicians Society is hoping to change by encouraging more people to get vaccinated. The people who, as of yet, haven't been vaccinated yet, you know, they're still at risk, at higher risk of, of, uh, of COVID. And so we would certainly encourage them uh, to uh, mitigate or lower their risk and, and get vaccinated. The KGH Physicians Society putting out a statement asking for the community's support in the fight against COVID-19. The statement reads, We have been diligently working 24-7 during the pandemic to keep our community safe and healthy. It then asks community members to help in the battle by getting immunized. According to the province, as of Tuesday, 87.8% of all eligible British Columbians 12 and up have received the first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine while 80.6% have received both, the first and the second, and are considered fully vaccinated. While the society knows some remain vaccine-hesitant and have legitimate concerns and questions, it encourages those people to talk to their primary health care providers. And there's obviously a lot of information out there, which is why in our statement we think it's important that you have a conversation with your family doctor um, who can give you the best up-to-date information. If you trust us to care for you when you get sick, and you have to come into the hospital, then we hope you would take that expertise and that advice up front when you're not sick um, to help prevent uh, illness for yourself. Claudia Van Ammer, Global News, Kelowna. Still to come, street racing, the whole city can get behind. Vancouver's known for being a very green and kind of eco-conscious city. Formula E outlines its plans for a major West Coast celebration of an electrifying future. And the search for BC's newest multi-millionaire after a single winning ticket. It's a record setter in Lotto Max.
A day of anticipation for fans of Britney Spears, some calling it B-Day. Their wait is finally over and Britney Spears is free of her father. It's a passionate bunch. A judge has suspended Spears' father from the conservatorship that has controlled her life and money for the past 13 years, saying the arrangement, quote, reflects a toxic environment. James Spears sought the conservatorship in 2008 and had been its primary controller. Over the summer, Britney Spears made a powerful plea to end the court-ordered arrangement. And while it's good news for the singer, there will be another hearing to consider ending the conservatorship altogether. But in the meantime, a replacement has been selected by Spears and her attorney. Leave Britney alone. Just really? Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's bring in senior meteorologist Christy Gordon for a look at the forecast. I'm just going to listen for a sec. Is there rain? Sounds like it. It sounds like it, yeah. It's not as heavy as it what it will be overnight tonight. You may actually be woken up by the rain being so heavy, but we're used to it. It's been pretty heavy over the last few days, hasn't it? Here's a look at the storm we're going to contend with tonight. It's about the size of the province and a very strong cold front in behind. And that's the tail part you see there. Here are the warnings for the North Coast region. So strong winds overnight, gusts up to 110 kilometers an hour. Also a high stream flow advisory for the region because you're expecting rainfall right through the weekend up to 100 millimeters. And then for the south coast we're mainly concerned about tonight and tomorrow morning uh, the areas in red gusts up to 90 kilometers an hour uh, lower mainland gusts up to 70 kilometers an hour and we're also expecting heavy rain up to 90 millimeters mainly along northern regions north shore out towards pit meadows uh, maple ridge tri-cities for example and over towards house sound as well so this is this evening those strong winds coming out of the southeast gusting right through the strait of georgia so for lower mainland areas near the water will feel the effects of it. We certainly could see some power outages and we could see some delays in the ferries. Tomorrow morning, those winds shift a little further inland. So that means that your commute to work tomorrow morning, slow. Give yourself extra time. Not only are you going to see pooling water on the roads, but it will be gusty. So definitely give yourself that time to be able to get to work safely. There's that band pushing through the region tomorrow morning. Now, as we get in behind it later in the day tomorrow, we actually could even see some breaks of blue sky. We still do have a chance of showers, though, and a risk of thunderstorms. So very unstable in behind that front that's going to bring the heavy rain. So here's a look at your forecast for your northern region. So periods of rain mainly along coastal regions. Interior regions will also see that. You can see that in the Kootenai region, sorry, the Columbia area as well. For the south coast, again, heaviest rain overnight through the morning hours tomorrow, but it is going to continue on and off through the afternoon tomorrow with a risk of thunderstorms, but I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a break or two in the cloud attack. As for your Friday and through your weekend, lots to look forward to. Yes, it's going to warm up. Highs of 18, 19 degrees come the weekend and sunshine. Here's tonight's central windows, weather windows. This is Mamata's cloud. We've seen these before. We've talked about it before. It's when we get vertical development in a thunderstorm cloud and basically it pops out that bottom of the cloud. Normally it's uh, nice and flat at the bottom of the cloud, but you get these billowy bits. So thank you to everyone who shared those photos. That was from last evening near Williams Lake in a 150 mile house. Wow. Cool photos. Thank you, Christy. Very cool. All right. It's been uh, a lot of years since the roar of Indy engines in downtown mm. Vancouver. Racing's coming back, but it's not going to look or sound the same. Yeah, no roar this time, Squire. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a lot quieter. The uh, Formula E cars are electric, so 
they're not going to make a lot of noise. In fact, they say they'll be quieter than the SkyTrain. It's more than just a race, though, what's going to happen next year around Canada's Day. Canada Day make that. There's going to be, well, I'll let the story tell you. But basically, you can make the scene while still being green. That's the important part. <laughs> it has been 17 years since development in Yale Town finally bumped the Molson Indy out of Vancouver. But next year, Formula E, featuring electric-powered cars, will return road racing to a city the Indy circuit loved. The people that got to race in Vancouver still talk about it. The mechanics and engineers still talk about it. This was quite literally everybody's favorite weekend. But this time, the weekend won't be just racing. There will be two concerts and a two-day business conference, which will be as unique as racing electric cars. It's not your typical business conference. It's like a TED Talks on steroids. Uh, lots of workshops, lots of fun things. Um, and we're going to have some pretty big speakers. Because the area has changed dramatically since the days of the Molson Indy, the track design is different. The course will be shorter, basically going from Science World to BC Place Stadium. The idea was to shrink it down so we wouldn't impact the lower end of the, the Olympic Village. Uh, make sure that the circuit stays within the park boundaries, you know, where the science world is and everything. So we're not having any residents inside the event. This way you can really limit the impact on them uh, uh, throughout the build and the race itself. The event has been in the planning stages for three years and organizers have no doubt the city that loved Indy cars will also embrace the Formula E cars just as much. The fact that it's an electric race had to be in a green city. To me, Vancouver made so much sense. It was a perfect fit. And the people we've been talking to for the past three years, they're all excited. They can't wait to see a race. I know it's different. You're not going to hear the engines. You're not going to... But you know what? It's in the streets. No pollution. No noise. Less noise than the SkyTrain. So we won't be disturbing the people around with all this noise. But I'll tell you, Formula E, lots of dogfights. There's good racing there. It's I good to get excited. it back. It's a lot of laps. It's a lot of laps. It's about a 45-minute race, well, and that'll be on quick. July the 2nd. But it's nice to have racing back. I mm -hmm. know when the Molson Indy was going around, a lot of people down there didn't like it because it was noisy, but a lot of people did like it. It was fun mm -hmm. to watch those cars. Anyway. All right, what else? Well, uh, we'll continue to talk about the Canucks. Uh, Phil DiCepi. Uh There's a guy, you don't hear his name much, but... Uh, DiGiuseppe is a guy that Canucks may use this year because he is a very versatile forward. We'll talk about him. Sounds good. Thank you, Squire. Also tonight, someone somewhere in B.C., well, we know it's Burnaby, don't we? Instantly $70 million richer. So how would you spend it? All right, what else is going on besides racing? All right, we'll talk about the Whitecaps. Because for the Whitecaps, this is a rather uh, busy week. They are in the midst of three games in seven days and are in a playoff fight as well, which means they can't be playing the same starters every game, no matter how good those players are. So tonight against Houston, the Whitecaps gave star midfielder Ryan Gold a rest. He didn't start the game, but Lucas Cavallini did. And so did Leonard Owusu, which is... Very lucky because the Whitecaps have not lost in the six games Owusu has started. Uh, Vancouver, though, early on, this could have been bad. But luckily, Houston's not a very good team, and they miss an excellent chance. So it is scoreless still in the first half. 
Well, there are a lot of new faces at Canucks camp this year, highlighted, of course, by the Arizona additions, Oliver ekman Larson, and Connor Garland. And, of course, last night we talked about how veteran Alex Chason, who's here in a tryout, is trying to make the team, and he is getting praise from Travis Green, another veteran forward who has caught the coach's eye in a good way, is Phil Giuseppe. You know, he's come as advertised. Probably he's been a good surprise. He's, he's a bigger body and can skate. Uh, I like his mind for the game. Just talking to him and watching him, not just in the games, but in practice. He, he's, he understands the details. Travis Green has never been one to single out individual players, so hearing the Canucks coach speak about off-season signing Philip DiGiuseppe says volumes about the camp that the versatile left winger's having. The 27-year-old looks to have the inside track on a bottom six forward spot, although don't tell him that. Uh, I don't think anything's accomplished yet. Um, you know, right when I signed here, I had a blueprint for what I had to do, and, um, you know, just so far it's just been work ethic and the work I've put in this summer, so... Like I said, it's an ongoing process. Every day I know it's an audition, and I take every rep, every drill, every second out there serious. So um, just focus right now. Like many college scorers, DiGiuseppe had to reinvent himself at the NHL level. He's played 201 games in the show, with the Canucks being his fourth NHL club. He can kill penalties and bring speed and size into the lineup, something Travis Green and Jim Benning are fans of, and he's also more than willing to get his nose dirty. If he does indeed make the Canucks, this will be his seventh year in the league. As you move up the ranks, you know, if you're not scoring, you got to add some value in other areas of the game. So uh, just paying attention to detail. Um, getting above guys, forechecking well, backchecking well. It's the little things um, that, you know, when you have success offensively, you may slip a little bit, but uh, it's something I've focused on. You know what, to be honest, I believe I'm an NHL player. It's something that, you know, over the last six, seven years, I've had to prove every day, but, um, you know, I know what I'm capable of, and I know my ceiling's much higher than, than what I've accomplished so far, so... Um, regardless of what team, I was, you know, pushing the same way. Um, you know, I, I have a great opportunity here. Um, everyone's been great, so it's been exciting, and I look forward to the following challenges. Jay Janower, Global Sports. All right, Blue Jays, they got to start winning. Yankees in Toronto. Marcus Simeon, man on. This is what you got to do. You got to put balls over walls if you're going to beat New York. That's what Simeon does. That's what Bo Bichette does here. That made it four to nothing for Toronto in the third. But those damn Yankees, as the play once called them, came back and tied it. Kyle Higashioka with a two-run single. However, Bo Bichette has hit another home run, and it's 6-5 Toronto in the eighth. The uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers have the oldest roster in the NFL, partly because Tom Brady is 44. So today they added another older player, signing 33-year-old defensive back Richard Sherman, formerly of the Seahawks and the 49ers. And one of the big reasons he's gone to Tampa is because Tom Brady asked him to. Me and Tom have had a great relationship over the years. I think, you know, people get confused on the field stuff, but um, we've, we've texted over the years and, and had a really cool relationship and, and always thought if, it'd be really cool to play together if we had the opportunity. And, um, you know, it's crazy how things shake out. Um, so it was a perfect situation, perfect fit, and I'm, I'm excited to be here. 
I think the cameraman in Tampa has to tilt down a little bit and turn on the light. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that would have been so much better. Would help. All right. Thanks, Squire. Just ahead, a one-ticket lotto winner from Burnaby now dreaming about how to spend $70 million like the rest of us are. Well, someone's multi-million dollar dream, not ours, has turned into reality. The winning ticket for Tuesday's Lotto Max jackpot was sold right here in Metro Vancouver. That's right, and so far no one has come forward to claim it. Jordan Armstrong now with what a cool 70 million bucks can buy you in this province. Someone, or some group, has a secret. Oh, I wish it was me. It's not you? <laughs> no. A really, really big secret. When you hear that amount, 70 million, what do you think? Uh, it's like boggles the mind, I guess. I live in Vancouver. I'm a millennial. I, I can't imagine having that much money. A $70 million Lotto Max ticket matching all seven winning numbers purchased somewhere in Burnaby is BC's biggest lottery prize ever. Winners have 52 weeks from the date of the job printed on the ticket to collect their prize. With $70 million in the bank, you could easily afford Fawn Bluff. $28.8 million gets you 320 acres on the emerald edge of BC's Great Bear Rainforest. The rustic main lodge features 4,000 square feet of living space. Of course, you'd need a nice yacht to get there. Add another $1.6 million for that. Then how about the Four Hearts Ranch? $23.8 million buys you 5,900 acres of roaming pastures, forests, and lakes in the South Caribou. Throw in a Bentley, and you have just over $15 million left for taxes, living expenses, plus friends and family. Honestly, I think town I want an investor. I know that's boring, but it's the truth. Just take a breath, assemble the right team of professional advisors around you, and then come up with a plan. Yes, $70 million is a lot of money, but consider this. Lululemon founder Chip Wilson's mansion here on Vancouver's Point Grey Road isn't for sale, but it's been assessed at $67 million. Any buyer would need to pay an additional $3.2 million in the property transfer tax. So, BC's biggest lotto prize isn't quite enough to acquire BC's most expensive property. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Oh, typical of <laughs> Vancouver real estate. Why didn't, why didn't Chip come out and wave at the camera? <laughs> That'd been nice. He's probably doing that right now. He's doing yoga right now. Yeah. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a great night and stay dry if you can. Good night, all.